Well, bless you this morning. Happy Mother's Day today to all of you. We've said that again. And wasn't that video? Did anyone cry during the video, aside from my two sons? They were weepy. <laughs> Just... Yeah. It's very, very weird, actually, my, how easily my sons can cry when they talk about their mother. This is great. Our son, my, mother, my wife's Mother's Day gift was her sons both being home with us over the weekend, and that, to her, is like the greatest gift ever. And I know for, for some of you, you're not able to be with your moms this weekend, and, and that's hard, but uh, happy Mother's Day all the same. And uh, boy, the, the passage we're looking at today, in, it, we're, we're in our series on Daniel. I got I to gotta confess, there's just no good mother figure in the whole book of Daniel. I, I couldn't force fit that. So I'm going to invite you this morning to take the Mother's Day hat off for just the next 30 or 40 minutes. We'll dive into the Word, and then you can put it back on when you go for Mother's Day brunch or whatever you're doing later in the day. Scones, okay? We'll, we'll do that. Would you join me in that? Um, we're looking at chapter 4, and uh, I, I feel like we're going to not just whip by chapter 4 in one week. We're actually going to look at it uh, next week as well. But we're in a story that involves Daniel, but really centers on Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And what I'd like to do and ask you to do right now is actually begin with the last sentence of chapter 4. Turn to to verse 37, and then we'll go back to the beginning. Uh, It reads like this, verse 37, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, this is kind of an executive summary of the whole book. It's the reason that this story is in the Bible, and the idea is very clear here, is those who walk in pride... God is able to humble. And this kind of statement's repeated over and over again throughout all of Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. Psalm 31, the Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Or Psalm 101, whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him I will not endure. Proverbs 16, God detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. And then James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And, and I want to leave those verses back on, on the screen for a while while we ask the question, why does God care so much about pride? Because it's obviously our, our world doesn't. Heard the story this week of a, of a woman who asked her pastor for a point, an appointment so she could talk about a sin in her life. And, and when she saw him, she said, Pastor, I've become aware of a sin in my life that I can't control. Every time I'm at church and I, and I look around at all the other women in the congregation, I, I realize I'm the prettiest one in the whole bunch, you know? None of the other ones can compare with my beauty. What can I do about this sin? And the pastor replied, Mary, that's not a sin. That's just a mistake. I like that joke, actually. I thought that was really good. You guys just seemed hesitant, like... As a pastor, I've had uh, people come to me to speak to me about all kinds of things, you know, depression or anger or addictive behaviors or, or doubt. Never has anyone asked to meet with me so they could talk about their pride. And, and if you go to the help, self-help section of chapters or a bookstore or on Amazon, you, you won't find very many books about cultivating humility. Someone once said, pride is the only disease that makes everyone else sick except for the person who has it, right? And and, and pride can be kind of an irritating trait when we see it in other people. But in our world, pride is often looked at just irritating at worst 
And at best, it's seen as a virtue, like part of being confident and being a, a high, high achiever and those kind of things. And it can be found in the church. Sometimes in, in those we, we consider spiritual giants, who, they're thought of that way, pride can be deeply ingrained in them. And that certainly was true in, in Jesus' day. But what I want to notice here is the language that God uses to talk about this condition. He detests pride. He opposes pride. He, he won't endure it. He'll pay it back in full. And this is God's word, and I don't believe Scripture writers use this language casually. I believe they use it because pride is, is when you think about it, it's so damaging, almost more dam- damaging than any other sin, damaging to relationships and damaging to our relationship with God. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at pride, we're going we're gonna to challenge it so that we can be those who thrive. Before we do that, why don't we just pause, bow your heads with me again, and let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come this morning, and uh, we want to find out what it means to walk in the right way, to live, a way, live in such a way as to honor you with our lives, and uh, we want to root out anything that, that is secretly killing us. <laughs> that's secretly destroying us, God. And if there is pride in us, Lord, I pray this morning you would, you would begin your surgery in our hearts that we might be free. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Started at the end. Let's go back to the beginning of, of Daniel chapter 4, verse, verses one, 1 to 4. It's kind of a letter uh, that, that Daniel, or I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar kind of broadcast throughout his kingdom. It says, from King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous." I want to stop here and kind of give you some of the setting of this story. Nebuchadnezzar liked to look at the city that he built. Further on in, in verse 29, it says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon that I built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And Nebuchadnezzar, as, as he looked at it in his city, he was looking at a record of, a, of achievement that was almost unparalleled in human history. Babylon, the, the capital city of his empire, was the site of so much construction under Nebuchadnezzar that it took 126 pages just to list the inscriptions that were on the buildings that he'd built. You know, try, try to imagine having conquered the known world and then essentially by only human labor. I mean, we're talking no... no cranes, no bulldozers, none of that, and then designing and constructing its most renowned city. You, you probably heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the hanging gardens of Babylon were probably the most profound of all of those. They are thought to have been constructed by Nebuchadnezzar. Apparently, he built it for one of his homesick wives who was homesick for the, the trees and the mountains of her homeland, and so he built these unbelievable suspended gardens with this uh, amazingly sophisticated irrigation system 
so that she could have a garden like she had back home. It's not so unlike what I do this time of year as my wife gives me an sort of, she gets the gardening bug in the spring and, and, and she gives marching orders to her little kingdom and we build her a hanging, the hanging gardens of Coquitlam right in my backyard. Not quite as grand as Nebuchadnezzar's, but all the same. I can relate to that part of the passage. Happy Mother's Day, darling. <laughs> but from the roof of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, he, he could look around it and, and he'd see a wall that would run around the entire city, 90 kilometers long, historians tell us. They tell us that it was so wide that a, a chariot with four, a four-horse-wide chariot could run the entire width on top of the wall around the whole city. Nothing like it in the world. Unbelievable. One historian, Herodotus, in the 5th century B.C., wrote, in addition to its size, Babylon surpass, surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. There was just no city like it anywhere. And it was Nebuchadnezzar's city. He built it. And, and he says, I was in my palace, prosperous and contented. Nebuchadnezzar had now achieved what we'd, we'd call in our society, he'd reached the good life. He'd, the, he'd, he'd got the Canadian dream, or the Babylonian dream, whatever you want to call it. Did Nebuchadnezzar think he had a problem? No. I, I was prosperous and contented in my palace. Who wouldn't be? Did God think Nebuchadnezzar had a problem? You see, one of the great dangers of pride is that often the person who struggles with it the most tend to be the most blind to it. So God launches Nebuchadnezzar on, on a journey that'll be long and, and painful. And, and though Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know it yet, this is going to be a battle for his life. He'd been through all kinds of battles, but nothing compares to this battle because this is a battle for his soul. I mean, and Jesus said so famously, you know, he said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And, and Nebuchadnezzar, he gained the whole world. He was a danger of losing his soul. So reading on in verse 5, he says, I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in my bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians and the, the enchanters, the astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him about the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its, its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was vis visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he called out in a, in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. 
Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human being, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king Belteshazzar said, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Let's stop here for a moment. Uh, Daniel's very concerned about this dream. He, he knows this is a statement of God's judgment and, and suffering, the coming of severe pain on Nebuchadnezzar. It's actually very bad news for the king. And Daniel's concerned for Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel is also possibly quite concerned for somebody else. Who? Himself. Himself. Yeah, Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, as we've read in earlier stories, he's a guy who does not take bad news well. He's the furnace guy, right? You know, things don't go his way, into the furnace with you. So I want you to notice here one thing that Nebuchadnezzar gets right. You know, it's kind of subtle. It's quite clear that, that Daniel's got bad news, and Nebuchadnezzar can tell from his body language that it says that Daniel's greatly perplexed. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this, and he could have stopped listening. He could have closed his ears to what Daniel was going to say. He could make it really clear that he only wants to hear good news with a positive spin. But look at what he says. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or meaning alarm you. In other words, he's saying, Daniel, tell me the truth. Don't don't hold back no matter how bad it is for for me. I, I won't punish you for it. Tell me the truth. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he's not really very far along enough spiritually yet to act on the truth, but, but that would take more time and a lot of suffering. But, but when that day came, which we'll read about next time, Nebuchadnezzar would know what he needed to know because of what Daniel says next. And because Nebuchadnezzar said, tell me the truth no matter what. And eventually, from one perspective, that's what saves him. So I want to challenge you here right more, this morning just to pause here for a thought. Do you have a Daniel in your life? Nebuchadnezzar had a a trusted spiritual friend who would tell him the truth. Do you have a trusted spiritual friend, somebody who will tell you the truth about this whole deal in your life? Over the last few years, I've been getting together with a a spiritual friend and mentor, and we talk about our lives, and, and God has used my friend to open up my eyes to some things in my own life, things that I needed to work on. And so I talked to him once about this issue, and I said, do you think I have any, any of this in my life? And uh, I said, just be really frank with me. And he was very frank, so frank that we're not friends anymore. I'm just kidding. But, but here's the deal, friends. With so many of the struggles that we have, whether it be sexual sin or, or relational issues or anger or, or addictions, it can be quite obvious that we, we have a problem. We know we have a problem. But with blind, with, I mean, with, with pride, I think we have a built-in blind spot. It, it's like the Pharisee, that, that great parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, 
where, where the, the, the guy, the Pharisee, prays next to a tax collector, and he actually says to God, I thank you that I'm not like him, right? I thank you that I fast and give and, and, and pray. Thanks that I'm spiritually superior to him. And, and the, the Pharisee is so full of pride that he actually despises the person next to him. And he's a spiritual nothing, but, but here he thinks he's, he's spiritually and, and morally so superior. And, and that can happen to anybody. And it can happen in, in churches, and it can happen to you, and it can happen to me. So I want to challenge you again. Do you have a Daniel in your life? If you don't yet, pray and ask God to lead you to one. And, and if you do, sometime in the next week or so, go to that person and simply say to them, tell me the truth. Do I have any of these issues in my life? Do I have any blind spots? Nebuchadnezzar gets one thing right, not, not much else actually, but, but he gets this one thing right. He asks for the truth, and eventually that's what saves him. Let's keep going. The second half of verse 19, Belteshazzar, again, that's Daniel, in case you get confused here. Belteshazzar answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its touch, top touching the sky, visible to the old earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your, your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High as issued against my Lord the king. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms on earth and gives, gives them to anyone he wishes." The command is to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Again, let me pause here. This is a strange dream. At the center of, of, of it is this tree, this, this tree of glory. And it really kind of expresses Nebuchadnezzar's life. Everyone looks up to him. The, the, the tree is visible throughout the, the whole earth. He receives constant praise and, and recognition and and admiration. Everyone's always reminding Nebuchadnezzar of just how important he is. And it says, you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it has reached the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. And what we really have in this, this pack, uh, passage, this picture, is, is a picture of human, proud, stubborn self-sufficiency. I've accomplished this all on my own. And, and, and there is a lot of achievement. It, it's an amazing city, but there's no acknowledgement of God, and there's no acknowledgement of dependence on God, or that every breath that he takes, every thought that he thinks is a gift. No, no sense that, that one day he's going to be accountable to God, <laughs> that, that he's to be a steward and a servant to the city and, and to this great empire and to all the people who are in it. That's what, what he's called to. A church leader many, many centuries ago uh, called Gregory the Great 
said this about pride. He said, pride makes me think that I am the cause of my achievements and that I deserve my abilities, and it leads me to despise other people that don't measure up. Pride causes this illusion of self-sufficiency. I made myself, I deserve all that I have. Um, it's a great story I like about the foolishness of pride. Uh, this guy was a CEO of a big company, and he's driving with his wife, and they pull into a gas bar station, and when he comes out of the gas bar, he sees his wife quite engaged talking with the gas bar attendant. And they get into the car, they drive away, they start talking, and it turns out she'd gone, gone to high school with that guy, and they had dated. And uh, the, the CEO is starting to feel pretty cocky about himself in that moment. And after a time of silence, he says to his wife, he says, I, I bet you I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you're pretty lucky you married me, a CEO and, and not a gas station attendant. And she says, no, actually, I was thinking if I'd married him and not you, he'd be the CEO and you'd be the gas bar attendant. <laughs> you guys were really nervous about that one. I, I could sense it as I was. <laughs> that landed the right way, I think. But there is this illusion inside each of us. I make, made myself who I am. So I want to ask you again, how about you? Are you ever slow to acknowledge your limitations or, or your, your dependence on God? Do you ever forget whatever abilities you have and however impressive they are, not to mention your very life and every breath that you take are gifts from God for which you ought to be grateful for every day? See, the irony Dave, Daniel pronounces here is, is Nebuchadnezzar is going to have his his life and his career kind of interrupted by a prolonged bout of insanity. But you know, the truth of it is, spiritually, he's already quite insane. He's already entirely out of touch with spiritual reality, and God is, is going to have to act. There's, God plans an intervention for Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, I, I'd prefer my friends to plan an intervention for me than God himself to plan an intervention. There's, it's probably a better way. But pride has become such a way of life for Nebuchadnezzar. It's so woven into his way of living and thinking and, 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 and seeing. His agenda, his, his priorities, his, his kingdom are all that he can think of. So God, in his mercy, will have to intervene in his life. And that's about to happen. But in verse 27, Daniel does a remarkable thing. And I, folks, I think this is one of the most amazing verses in the entire book. Daniel's just shared the, the dream and interpretation. He could stop there, but then look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. One, one pastor I greatly respect talks about about the idea of saying the final 10% to someone, you know? The, the idea is often that when someone is to be confronted, that you hold back out of fear from saying it all, from maybe saying the hardest truth. You don't say the final 10%. And, and Daniel, he could have he held back. He could have just kind of given the interpretation, and he could have been just kind of vague about it. Like, like it's, it's clear, Nebuchadnezzar, you got some problems, but, you know, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're okay spiritually, 
you're on solid ground. But what does he say to King Nebuchadnezzar, the furnace guy? Renounce your sins, he says. Let me ask you, when's the last time you said that to someone, not your spouse? <laughs> Happened to me actually a while back. I, I, I'll never forget this prayer meeting we had here at Hillside. And uh, I, in a moment of great humility in my life, I was sharing um, a, about an issue that I had with anxiety or I, I was struggling with worry. And I, and I shared this in the group and a person who should remain unnamed, K. Agar, just, just said, said in response to my little confession, she says, that's, that's a sin, Derwin. She's, she's just got such a pastor's heart, that woman. I love her. But she was right, and it was good. And, and Daniel is bold here, and he's bold in such a way, there's no sense of, of moral superiority. Uh, no, no self-righteous indignation. It, it gives him no pleasure to say these words. He loved this man, but he says them. He says them to an arrogant and powerful king who with a word could have had him killed. He says them with bold honesty. O king, renounce your sins by doing what is right. Renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, which could also be translated being kind to the poor. Now, you've got to understand this. Daniel now is doing some serious meddling with King Nebuchadnezzar. When he, when he says, do what's right, it could be translated, do justice. And what he's talking here is about the, the fair distribution of resources. He's addressing Nebuchadnezzar's use of wealth and power. He says, break with your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed and the poor. Daniel doesn't say, just acknowledge that God's in control and then go on living life the way you've been living it. Daniel's now messing with how much money is going into the hanging gardens. How, how many more walls are going to get built? How many more buildings are going to be built with, with Nebuchadnezzar's inscriptions on them? And how many more human beings are going to be exiled like, like Daniel and the rest of the Israelites and treated like objects and slaves? Daniel here is doing some serious messing. He says, renounce your sins by, by doing justice, your wickedness by being kind to the poor. And folks, he says this because God just takes this whole area really seriously. Because really, at the, at the heart of Christian humility is the call that we have to serve other people, to let go of my arrogance and to let go of my agenda and to humbly receive grace from God and then serve the people he loves. And, and then you'll notice, and especially I'd say to notice and to see and to love and to serve those Jesus called the least of people the least of these. Over and over throughout the whole Old Testament, there's all kinds of commands that are given about the treatment of, of three groups of people, the orphans and the widows and the foreigners. One scholar notes that the chief way, not the only way, but the chief way that God judges a community lies in how we treat what we now call marginalized people. And so humbly be kind to them, it's at the, the heart of God's concern for human beings. I was reading this week uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Mere Christianity. It's such a great book, and it's got a whole chapter on pride. Uh, and, and he actually, just as a Mother's Day link here, he calls pride the mother of all sins. I think that's what he did. I don't know, actually, if he says that or not. I just uh, like that he might have said that. 
He did say this, though, about the damage that pride can do. He says, pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. He goes on to say that pride is enmity. Enmity, hatred towards other men and women, and enmity toward God. We've got to understand this. God is, is set against pride. The reason God opposes pride so deeply is not because he is threatened by high achievers or because God wants to get the credit. That's not what he's about. I remember someone saying that this uh, uh, many years ago, no one's supposed to be proud except God, and it's okay for God to be proud because he's God. That, that's absolutely wrong. The, the greatest expression of humility we'll ever see is that which we see demonstrated in the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We find as we really look at God, we find He is the humblest being in the universe. And if it wasn't clear to us in the Old Testament, it becomes clear in Jesus. Jesus, who became flesh, was, was the most authentically humble person to ever walk this earth. And His kingdom looked nothing like Nebuchadnezzar's he didn't use slave labor to, to build bid, buildings with his inscriptions on them. His destiny was not a tree of glory. It was a tree of shame. And before that tree, that, that cross, there is no room for pride, for there was none in the one who hung there. I was struck by the line from Isaac Watts' hymn this week, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And folks, God is unspeakably good. And the reason God is so opposed to pride is to quote Lewis again, it's because it creates misery, misery of uh, it's suffering among people. It's anti-community, it's anti-servanthood, and it's a violation of the fellowship of the Trinity, this fellowship that you and I are invited to be a part of. And pride is also the condition that is most fundamentally opposed to love. As the Apostle Paul said, love is not proud. It does not boast. Because pride whispers to, me, whispers to me to be kind to only those people who I can use or, or who make me feel good emotionally. Or pride tells me to view people as a means to an end. I mean, pride, pride causes me to be judgmental towards others with problems. And it feeds my sense of, of spiritual superiority, and it destroys love. Pride causes me not to think about, not even to notice. We become blind to them, those who are the least of these, those who are oppressed or are poor. Friends, God is relentlessly opposed to pride, and I'm so glad he is. And God, as we'll read next week, humbles Nebuchadnezzar, and in the end, the humbled Nebuchadnezzar looks up to the heavens and gives thanks for a God who cared enough about his soul to humble him. And I want to kind of wrap things up this morning by getting a little bit more personal again. Um, you know, one of the problems we have with pride is it's often easier to spot in others than it is in ourselves. It's something that it's easier to notice in others. It's like Jesus, I think he was getting at this when he had the teaching of the picking the speck out of somebody else's eye and we have the log in our own eye. The problem with pride is we tend to magnify the sins of others, the faults of others, 
and we minimize our own, right? And pride's a funny thing. It really bothers us when we see it in other people. But the truth is, one way or another, every single person in this room struggles with pride. So if you've been during this message thinking about somebody else who really needs to hear this message, let's, let's change the focus here this morning. It's, it's about you and it's about me. I've got to say, ever since I started studying this passage a couple weeks ago, it's, it's hit frustratingly close to home. It's like God's been lining, you know, shining a light on my own life and my own heart, and, and it seems I'm bumping into my own pride, and I, I think I'd forgotten how deeply rooted it is in me and how God is inviting me to a different way. And he's inviting you to a different way. And so... Um, what I did was, was uh, I, I believe you need to go find a Daniel, but can we, uh, for a moment here this morning, allow the Holy Spirit to be a Daniel in our lives? And I put together some questions that I pulled from here and there, but to ask ourselves questions that I think can be almost like diagnostics of our own hearts, that based on some of the ways we live, will show us where this sits in our life. And so you'll have these questions on the back of your, your handout today, but I'm going to read over them. And let's have this kind of as a, just a few moments of reflection this morning in the service. First of all, do you express gratitude often to God and others for the little things in your life? Are you a grateful person for the most part? Are you quick to find fault with others and verbalize those faults to others? Very connected to that. Do you frequently correct or criticize others with a need to be right a lot of the time? Conversely, are you defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Do you spend a lot of time or energy on impression management? For example, do you give undue time or attention to your physical appearance. In other words, are you overly concerned with how people think of you? Do you ever exaggerate the truth or lie to make a better impression to others? Pride prefers some people over others. Do you feel superior to others who are less educated, less affluent, or less successful than you? Do you feel superior to people of a different race than you are? Are you proud of the schedule that you work? You know, how disciplined are you? How, how much you accomplish with your life? Are you proud of that? Do you generally think your way is the best way and the right way? This next one's key. When is the last time you confessed a sin to another person? How foreign is that to your experience? When is the last time you asked for help? Is it difficult? Do you find it difficult to receive help? Is it hard for you to do? Do you get hurt 
if your accomplishments or your acts of service are not recognized or rewarded or noticed. Do you avoid participating in certain things for fear of embarrassment or for looking foolish? And then when's the last time you said these words to a family member, to a friend or a coworker? I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Finally, are you, are you thinking right now about how many of these questions apply to someone else you know? <laughs> so I'm asking, I'm asking that we challenge this one this week, that we just let go of the whole pride deal. That, that uh, I, I, I'd love to have, I, I believe Jesus inspired Isaac Watts' words, pour contempt on all my pride. I think that's our call is to actually bring our pride to the cross of Christ, <laughs> the tree of shame, and to leave it there before him. No, no one goes and stares very long at Jesus and the cross without leaving from that space a humbler person. Because <laughs> we go, he's all good, and he loves us in spite of us, and we have nothing, we have nothing to offer. We have nothing that we can offer God to, to make him love us more or, and there's nothing that we can do that, that would make him love us less, right? So this week, let's, let's bring our, our shame, our, our, our pride, our foolish pride. It's so foolish in light of who God is. Let's bring it to the cross. Confess it to him first. Maybe confess it to, to the Daniel in your life. And if, if you feel like you don't know and you need, you need a diagnostic on this, go to your Daniel. Go, find a Daniel somebody who will tell you the whole truth and say, don't hold back. Give me the full hundred. Don't hold back the final 10%. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's, actually, why don't you stand together? And uh, next week, I'm, I'm pretty excited. We're going to look at see how, what God can do with a humble life. So let's pray. God, this morning, you, you give us this invitation to humility, this invitation to uh, live lives surrendered to your greatness and your will. Lord, thank you for, for the way you intervened in, in Nebuchadnezzar's life in order to expose his pride. You've been doing that in my life this week, and I pray you that you do this with us as a community, Lord. Not so that we feel guilty or ashamed or beat ourselves up for where we're fallen, but rather so that we might truly be free. Grant us grace, Lord, to, to truly uh, open up ourselves to your, 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 your truth and your word. Teach us what it means to walk in humility. And I pray too, Lord, I just help us treat each other well. Help us love each other well. Uh, Father, uh, especially help us notice and see and love the least of these that you've placed in our lives. Might we not overlook the poor, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, again, happy Mother's Day. Enjoy the scones. Um, and as always, if uh, you would like to receive prayer, come forward and, and would love to pray with you. But for now... Receive the benediction. So as you go from this place, may God grant you this grace.
that you might walk in the confidence and in the humility of one who knows that they are a child of the living God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.